blowing with the conversation. Uh, we're gonna have a conversation about climate change. So uh, we're literally going to be talking about disaster. Uh, the degree of the disaster is uh, frightening given the report that came out on Monday saying basically we're all gonna die. Um, <laughs> well, that is true, we are all going to die. Not super immediately, but close. All right, we're gonna get into the details, give you the actual facts behind that. Uh, to help us do that, we're gonna bring in Dr. Shutta Chakraborty. Uh, she is the US president of We Don't Have Time. Uh, well, that appears to be the God's honest truth. Um, and she's, of course, a climate change expert. Uh, welcome, appreciate you joining us. Thank you so much for having me, Jenk. No problem. So the IPCC report came out on Monday and it says uh, pretty much we're all screwed. Uh, first thing I wanna start with though is, so it was 195 countries that participated in this report. And they reviewed 14,000 studies to come to the conclusion that climate change is definitely real and definitely, they said, quote, unequivocally man-made. Okay, now those are very strong statements, thank God. Um, why have all the scientists in the world decided to lie in unison? Yeah, you know, we've been saying it for decades, but what was so unique about this report was the language that was used, the one that you just quoted, unequivocally human made and caused. And that's really important because that means that because we put this ball into motion and we're here in terms of these increased and simultaneous and frequent and intense impacts of climate change that we have co-created alongside of what is underpinning natural impacts of climate. We can also change it, we can correct course. That's why it's so important to really emphasize that this has been human caused, but it can be human solved. So even though climate change is here, it's at our doorstep, we can also act on it. And there's this really critical window of action that can keep us to below 1.5 or three degrees Fahrenheit before the end of the century. And we need to see that happen and that conclusion be fulfilled from the Paris Accords that was put together five years ago. And we know now is the sixth year and the upcoming COP26 is going to do kind of a, well, let's do a temperature check, no pun intended as to where we are now from the original Paris Accords. But ultimately the goal of this report is leading up to COP26 to ensure that we really don't get past that maxed out temperature, global temperature warming by the end of the century. Okay, but Dr. Chakraborty, uh, you know, I started around by asking, you know, sarcastically, why are all the scientists in the world lying? Because uh, the problem isn't that we don't know what's happening. 99% of the world's scientists are not lying in unison. That is absolutely insane, right? They're not changing the thermostats across the world. There's no reason why an Indian scientist and a Brazilian scientist and a Russian scientist would all agree to lie at the same time. That's insane. Yet, in this country, we are not taking action. So who's really the insane ones? And so my point there is, isn't this really not a science problem? Like we, every scientist agrees, if you jump off a tall building, gravity is real and you will die. It's just that we have politicians in this country, not just Republicans, but Democrats apparently don't believe the scientists. So they're dragging their heels. And so how do we fix a political problem when the fossil fuel industry has successfully done propaganda to manufacture doubt? 
I mean, you, you said it better than I could in terms of what's going on here. This, we have the technology, we have plenty of technologies in the pipeline in addition to what's already part of our solutions toolkit to address these climate impacts. But we need the political will and we need to bring Biden's build back better agenda, the climate agenda portion of it into fruition. We need to see this reconciliation bill have all the clean energy standards that are going to be required to meet this target. Um, that is going to keep us to that under three degrees Fahrenheit by the end of the century. And we need to do that, especially by ensuring we get to clean electricity by 2035. And that's just one thing that the US can really take, pick up and take a lead on. Because once the US takes action, we're going to see other countries follow suit. That's what they've been waiting for. That's what was the hesitation during the Trump era. But now with Biden back in, back in the driver's seat, we can really see the leadership come back for this climate agenda because we do need all these countries to act. And no, the scientists across different countries are not lying in unison. The idea that anybody would think so is is as akin to thinking cigarettes won't cause lung cancer. That's how sure the science is. We know the science is that we are polluting the planet to the point where we are going to have a collective cancer. And if we don't really urgently act and change our collective human behaviors and change the trajectory that we're on, we know exactly where we're going to find ourselves. So it really is a political will question and we are really at this critical juncture in American politics to see the policy we need come through. So in case some of the viewers don't know, the last five years have been the hottest on record since 1850. So again, not in dispute, constantly hotter and hotter and hotter. And the recent rate of sea level rise has nearly tripled compared to between 1901 and 1971. The sea level rise is so frightening, we'll get to that in a little bit. But but let's now keep it real. So the reason that those politicians aren't acting is because they're bribed. They're bribed by fossil fuel companies. We call them campaign donations and independent expenditures and dark money, but none of that makes it any better. There's still a bribe. Um, they, Exxon Mobil wants to make money. They bribe uh, both Republican and Democratic politicians to make sure that we don't take any action. So now the uh, scientists called for quote, deep rapid cuts in greenhouse gas emissions. So if we're keeping it real, doesn't that mean that we've got to fairly quickly end fossil fuel companies altogether. And that's why they're fighting like tooth and nail, because it's their profits on the line, it's their existence on the line. Yeah, and it's really short sighted ultimately, because there's no one that is going to be isolated from these impacts of climate change. Even the greediest and wealthiest and those that are in these industries are going to feel the impact. So it's really, even if we, even if we just think about it from, okay, let's say that it truly is a short term monetary gain that is continuing to facilitate this, um, this pollution of our planet. It doesn't make sense in the long term. And that just goes to show how short sighted these individuals and these companies are. Um, and unfortunately, there's no room for these industries to even continue business as usual. And we have to urgently end any sort of subsidies to oil and gas companies and to those who enable oil and gas companies. And we need to incentivize clean energy. And we can overhaul sectors and we can create jobs. And the hardship that 
that this these disinformation campaigns continue to propagate by saying that there's going to be pain for Americans and more broadly if we stop these industries from continuing business as usual. That's truly disinformation, we have to fight that, that's not true. There's a better, cleaner, healthier future for everybody if we transition in a thoughtful, transparent way to clean energy. And that's what we need to aggressively put out there through the media and other channels to ensure that people know, the end recipient of this information knows that it will be better, maybe a little more painful in the short term during the transition. But overall, have that longer view, because we're talking about our collective futures here and the futures of our families. There's no, there's no future where oil and gas continues as is. Yeah, imagine if we said, okay, look guys, let's be fair, these oil companies, they are making a lot of money and there's a lot of jobs on the line here. And so we're gonna continue pressing this button. By the way, the 10th time we press the button, all the nukes go off and we all die. And we're like, eh, I know, but those guys need jobs. Let's keep pressing the button. No, we're like, you're not getting it. Okay, so that goes to the sea change, literally. So. Apparently, the conservative, the very conservative estimate is that the sea levels will rise by half a foot by 2100, right? And now we're only 80 years away or 79 years away from that. The non-conservative estimates say, well, if the glaciers in West and West Antarctica collapse, it'll be six and a half feet all across the world. So I don't get it. All of our cities, not all of them, but a lot of them are built on the coast. I'm asking a literal question, I really don't know. Would they just, like, does it literally rise half a foot or a foot and a half and New York is underwater? Yeah, I mean, it's gonna vary depending on exactly where we're talking about. But places like Miami, for example, are really vulnerable because it's a limestone core underneath the city, which is like a sponge. And so when you have sea level rise, you have water coming up from literally from from below the actual city itself, which destabilizes infrastructure, which contributed to that collapse of the building that was covered in the press. And so these are the kinds of things that you would anticipate happening more in cities that are built, especially in on vulnerable, not concrete like Manhattan, but places like Miami that are built on limestone. And most of civilization is built along the coast. It made sense for maritime economy, transportation, all of the things that we have, we actually really require and have come to enjoy. People love being along the ocean fronts, but that doesn't mean it's going to be something that we can realistically enjoy forever. We need to be really practical about what we know the numbers are and prepare for those worst case scenarios. So we don't find ourselves doing what happened in Rotterdam, for example, in in the Netherlands. You saw that there was a billion spent on a gate to prevent storm surges that were coming into the city and it wasn't high enough. And so the amount of money that was put into this infrastructure to prevent flooding from storm surges resulted in being ineffective. So we can have that, we need to be smart. We need to really look at the, the numbers that have been verified collectively in this IPCC report and build infrastructure to protect our 
cities from experiencing flooding, from experiencing storm surges um, that are going to get worse with sea level rise and heavy precipitation events. These things are connected. And then we need to adapt to the reality that we're not going to have some of these places that we have grown accustomed to and retreat. Look at managed retreat inland and really places we can protect. We need to get into motion now so as to prevent real relief and recovery efforts in the future that we can't afford. If we start seeing hurricanes happen simultaneously at key city centers in the United States and around the world, now we're talking about trillions in relief and recovery. So let's be smart and put in the money we need upfront to proactively prepare against what we know is coming in terms of increased climate change impacts. And let's also adapt and move away in a way that is smart and in line to the science. Yeah, we're out of time here, but Look, bottom line is mother nature ain't nothing to mess with and she's coming. I mean, we're now having legitimate conversations about moving inland because we're not gonna make it. The cities aren't gonna make it. And so, and and by the way, the oil company executives know it too. Rex Tillerson, who was Secretary of State for Trump, was CEO of ExxonMobil. And ExxonMobil doesn't just do oil, they do tons of fracking. And when they started fracking near his house, he's like, oh no, no, that's really dangerous. And he lobbied to stop the fracking near his house. Okay, so they know, they know, there's study after study inside ExxonMobil and other companies. We've got to take action and we can't be worried about their goddamn profits because it's all of our lines on the lives on the line. All right, Dr. Chakraborty, thank you so much for joining us. Everybody check out, we don't have time. Well, now it's appropriate in a couple of ways. And And thank you for fighting back, we really appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. All right, back on the conversation. We've got an interesting guest for you guys now. Uh, Amanda Littman is the co-founder of Run for Something. Amanda, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me, Jenk. I'm so glad to be here. Uh, no problem. Amanda, what are we running for? We are running for everything. Uh, Run for Something works primarily with young progressives running for local office all across the country. And since launching in 2017, we've identified nearly 80,000 young people who want to run for things like school boards, city council, state legislature, you know, the little building block, building blocks of the democratic process. Okay, I'm super interested in that because mm-hmm. I, I started Just Democrats, which helps people do it at the federal level. But I always thought that you need an organization that does what you do. Um, so but let's fill that out. So let's say I'm rando progressive in Wyoming, okay, and I want to run. Mm-hmm. Okay, where do I go and what do I do? Great question. So you go to runforwhat.net, you enter your information, you look up the kinds of offices that are available to you in 2021 and 2022. Um, you join a conference call, you talk to one of our volunteers. Then we will help you figure out everything from how to get on the ballot to how to get the voter file to what to do once you actually have the voter file in hand, uh, how to talk to voters, what to talk to them about all the way through to election day. Um, You can apply for our endorsement and if we endorse you, we might give you some money, some volunteers. Uh, We'll connect you to other candidates who are running across the country and we'll take you all the way through to election day. And afterwards, we'll help you figure out either how to transition into governing or how to wind down your campaign. Okay, you said almost 80,000, I see the number here, it's 77,348 people that were prospective candidates. You can't do that for all of them, that's crazy. So help me understand, like what's the process? Like it can't be that you help all of them do all of that. You guys would have to have like a trillion dollars to do it. So yeah, help me understand. I wish we had a trillion dollars. Me too. So it's a bit like a 
like a normal marketing funnel. You know, we have about as of this morning, we're up to about seventy nine thousand, so pretty close to eighty k um, who signed up on our website. About half of them have joined a conference call. Uh, about half of those folks have had a one on one with our volunteers, and those people are admitted to our pipeline and are getting everybody who signed up is getting regular resources and information and you know materials about what running for office might be like. The reality is, is that the idea from thinking about running for office to actually getting on the ballot can take a couple of years. You know, it's not something you just jump into. It's a big career shift for most people. Um, so we know that people who signed up with us back in 2017, many of whom are just now actually getting on the ballot. Our endorsement process is where we really dig in with folks. And we've endorsed in the lifetime of the organization about 1700 folks across all 50 states, mostly women, mostly people of color. The one thing that does make run for something really unique in this space is we only work with people under the age of 40 and we only work with first time candidates for local office. So it's a very distinct scope of work for our program. Well, that's really interesting. Um, and is there um, any Issues that you guys, you know, you said progressive. So how how do you define that? Let's put it that way. Well, we have a broad set of value statements we want every candidate to abide by. You know, pro choice, pro quality, pro tolerance, pro diversity, pro working families, pro unions, pro immigration reform, pro reducing gun violence, pro actually doing something about climate change. But the reality is, is because we work in all fifty states, and because we work for a range of offices from city councils and state legislatures all the way down to like coroners and library boards. We don't really have space to have a litmus test on clear policy positions. What we hope is that candidates who share our values will show up in those rooms and those city halls and and act on those values in a way that we can align with. So just some Democrats had only one litmus test that was no corporate PAC money. Um, are Do you guys have a similar one or no? No, we're really looking for people who are running strong grassroots driven campaigns. I'll say it's pretty rare that a lot, many of our candidates are taking corporate PAC money. They're just not getting engaged on the level of offices that we work on. Um, but it's not something we hold people to or against. What we really need are candidates that are running strong, positive, grassroots driven campaigns that are really engaging with voters on the issues. Um, everything else can really be taught or learned or negotiated throughout the process. but. If people are really engaging with their voters in a meaningful, genuine way, um, we trust that they're going to be in the right place for their communities. When did you guys start this? We launched on Inauguration Day in 2017, so just about four and a half years ago. That's amazing. It's almost exactly when Just Democrats launched. Okay, that's great. So you said uh, you, you've endorsed nearly 1,500 candidates, and, mm -hmm. and how many have won? So we have elected 515 people across 47 states, mostly women, mostly people of color. And we expect that number to increase by at least 100, 150, because we're going to have about 300 candidates on the ballot this November. So when you say you helped to elect them, did they go through this pipeline or do you also mm -hmm. endorse people that did not go through this pipeline? Everyone we endorse has gone through our pipeline. Um, so the people that we track wins and losses are the folks that we've endorsed. Jesus, that's an amazing group. You help, yeah. they, went, they actually try to figure out how to run through you guys. You taught them how to run and 515 of them won. Pretty cool, right? <laughs> no, that's not pretty cool. That's amazing. That's really cool. Okay, so hold up now. <laughs> This is what are you like <laughs> the best kept secret in America? Okay, um, so uh, 
when you say help them win, okay, you told them the basics, and that's really important. Nobody knows the basics, like getting the voter file. Nobody knows that, right? And so, what do you? What is the voter file? What do you do with it? That's already super important, right? But then, when you're running, God, you, you know, especially for a slightly bigger office, you need a campaign manager, you need all that, mm-hmm. you need money. So, of the 1,500 candidates. I, again, I keep wondering if you guys have a trillion dollars. You couldn't have given all of them money, could that, right? No, you didn't give all of them money. No, we gave very few folks money. You know, we've been slowly been building up over the last four years the infrastructure you need to invest locally because because we don't do it in federal races, we have to really work around each state's campaign finance law. Um, so we've given out some. We've probably given out or helped raise a couple hundred thousand over the last couple of years. Um, but the big value add we have for people is community with other candidates, people they can ask stupid questions to for free, um, and really making sure that they know that there is a network for them that can help them. You know, you're familiar with this. Running a campaign is much like running a small business. It's why we have so many like small business incubators and VC companies that help get founders off the ground. Candidates need that kind of backbone infrastructure support that is not quite money and volunteers and. Not quite advertising, but is really an advisor you can go to and say, I don't know what I'm doing, please help me. Um, and we have heard over and over again from our candidates that that kind of support has been invaluable. The other thing we've heard from people over and over again, and in fact, in a debrief survey we did in 2018, um, 60% of candidates told us that a relationship with another candidate was their greatest source of resiliency. Running for office is terrible. It's super lonely. It's really hard. And especially if you're a young person running somewhere outside of a big urban center, you probably don't know very many other people like you who are doing this. Um, So we make sure to connect people to each other and to folks who've run before. So you can really build what I think is becoming a nationwide movement of young people running and leading and serving and making a difference in a way that is revolutionary. Yeah, it sounds like it. Uh, So. Uh, <laughs> I continue to be amazed <laughs> by this organization because that is a giant number of wins. Uh, and so they're getting some information from you, they're getting some from the forum, and including fellow candidates. By the way, the reason the squad exists is because mm-hmm. those are four Justice Democrats that had known each other when they were running and leaned on each other when mm-hmm. they were running. So that's why when they got into Congress, they were the squad. Now, Katie Porter is a great progressive, but wasn't in Justice Democrats, so that's why she wasn't in the squad because she wasn't in that group that was leaning on each other. So that that's why I know from personal experience it makes a giant difference that you've set up that mm-hmm. network that supports people. Now, of the ones who won, they they still had to have had very little money, generally speaking, I would guess, and had just learned it from you guys, and they're all first timers. So, what was the sense you you all have for? What's the most likely route to success? What did they do that you think got them the wins as opposed to others? Out hustle their opponents. Um, One of the things we really look for in candidates is people who are willing to work hard, knock doors, make phone calls, talk to voters and connect with them in any way possible. Um, Our candidates regularly will personally knock anywhere from five to 25,000 doors themselves, depending on where you are and the timing of your race, the pandemic sort of you know, create a little exception here. Um, but what we have seen over and over again is our candidates, especially the ones who flip seats, who win, win districts that go red to blue, are the ones who are out hustling their opponent. They often get outraised and outspent because they often get under uh, underestimated. Um, but they are tenacious, they are connected, 
they also really understand the voters that they are trying to engage in a way that I'm not sure their opponents or I guess the results bear out their opponents do not. <laughs> yeah, and by the way, guys, if the smaller the race is, the more knocking on doors and working hard will make a difference. Mm -hmm. That's why now council people don't try to go federal levels too hard. Like I, there's some wonderful people that can do it, and that's the whole job of just Democrats to find those people. But trying to knock on 750,000 doors is too hard, right? But at a at a local level, you really can do it, and it can make a big difference. And other people helping you can make a big difference. So I love what you guys are doing. Before we go, I mean, you said a couple hundred thousand dollars. Let's help. Can people donate? Where can they donate? So, Run for Something's 2020 budget was barely three million dollars. Um, if you want to give and help make that more, you want to double it, you want to triple it, <laughs> runforsomething.net slash donate is where to go. Every dollar means so, so, so much to our scrappy team. Um, we are trying to expand and recruit candidates to run for every single one of the half a million elected offices in the United States. It's going to take a lot of time, it's going to take a lot of money, but I think we have seen what is possible with 3 million. Imagine what would be possible with the Republican iteration, which has 30 or 35 million. All right, runforsomething.net. Uh, turns out you might win. <laughs> so I love it. Uh, Amanda, thank you so much for joining us. Really appreciate it. Thanks for having me, Jenk.